Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we have a big show tonight because for the first time in the three years we've been doing this show, we're actually going to be talking about the Orioles trading away a player that we grade highly in the system. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later on. But first, we have a guest on tonight's episode. He's a prospect writer for Baseball America, the publication that just released his top 100 prospects list that included eight Orioles. Uh, he is Jeff Ponce. Jeff, how are you? Pretty good, man. How are you guys doing? Uh, glad to join the show. We're happy glad to have, to have you on. We're all uh, big fans of your work here. And let's start off with uh, Baseball America's recent rankings between the top 100 list and the best uh, best of list that the publication has been putting out. It's clear that the Orioles still have a strong farm system, even after last year's graduation of Adley Rutzman. How would you assess it right now? Yeah, um, I, I think it's still arguably the top system in the game. Um, one of the, I think it's one of the only times, I forget the other time, there was one other time in the history of BA where there were consecutive number one prospects that were different players in consecutive seasons. That happens so rarely. And, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that Grayson Rodriguez for two years has been the best pitching prospect in the game, a top three pitching prospect in the game, and very close with like two completely unusual, prodigious talents and Yuri Perez and, and Andrew Painter. Um, and by all accounts, I think, you know, Grayson, had he been fully healthy, probably would have been up in the major leagues last year and already graduated and passed his limits. Um, but it's not just the guys that they've had in the system that they've developed. It's also their ability, I think, to identify players that sort of fit their chefs, right? Like I always use this analogy, like, if you want, like, if you buy, if you hire a French chef and he's the best French chef in the world and you go and you buy ingredients for, you know, uh, an Italian meal, like it will probably be a pretty good meal, but like you buy, you give that guy like, you know, ingredients to make a great French meal, he's going to make you a great meal. And the thing that they've been able to do so well is identify the type of players that their player development does a good job of improving. And it seems to be particularly on the hitting side guys who have elite swing decisions that don't chase out of the zone have power and have defensive profiles, whether it's up the middle, but valuable defensive profiles that even if things don't go totally right, they're not going to tumble that far down the defensive spectrum. They're not drafting a lot of like first base only right, right guys. They're not drafting guys who hit for a lot of contact that like contact isn't even an issue. Um, they may have guys that hit that are good contact hitters that also do these other things really well, but you look throughout the system and that's what they've been able to do. They, they don't just have good hitting prospects that get on base with power. They have guys that can also play position. And I think that's kind of rare. Like you usually don't see that uh, teams able to marry two. Now they've been able to draft high. They've had a lot of draft capital to be able to spend to kind of move guys around the board. Um, but there's players outside our Orioles top 10 
that I think are arguably top 100 prospects or could be top 100 prospects very shortly um, if things go well. Um, and that's kind of remarkable. I mean, they had an, they had a chance to maybe have their whole top 10 in the top 100, and that's never happened. Before. And it probably won't, but I think there's a case to be made for some of the guys that were on the outside, like a Kobe Mayo. I've always been a big fan. Kirstad, I don't even think, cracked our top 10. I think if Heston Kerstad comes and mashes over the first two months, he's a top 100 prospect. We know what he could be, right? And he had this unusual thing happen. Are they going to start developing arms that are that project as more than relievers outside of Hall and, and Grayson, which, you know, it's not the Elias group. So, you know, I think that's what the big question is. But on the hitting side, like, they continue to hit the – like, just – they kill it. Like, they're Jackson Holiday pick. It's funny. Because everyone – remember the whole storyline of, like, oh, they're, they're going to move guys around. They're going to move money down. They're not going to take mm-hmm. the best player on the board. La, 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 la. And we polled um, front offices, so GMs, scouting directors, AGMs. We talked to all 30 teams. We polled them on our top 100 list. And so the process is we do our top 30s. We put together the handbook. We send it out to press. We take a few weeks off for Christmas. We come back. We start compiling all of the grades together and the risk, and there's a deduction there and a point total. And then we rank off of that, and we rank based on where guys rank in the system. Then we send that list out to, to front offices with maybe 130, 140 players on it. And the feedback we got back on Jackson Holiday, who was already ranked like 30, 29, 28, like somewhere in that range, the feedback was like every, like we got 12 different pieces of feedback that said move him up. We had some people who were like, he's a top five prospect. He's a top 10 prospect. He's the best player that was in that draft. And universally, Everyone we spoke with pretty much preferred him to Drew uh, Jones. So I think it kind of kills that narrative a little bit, especially when one of the other guys they've taken the number pick was, I don't know, Adley Rushman, who had like a five-war season while playing like two-thirds of the year in the majors. Like, come on. You know, so if they can get the pitching to come along, and, and I think there's strategy behind all the things they're doing, at this point, like I've been beating the drum that this is the best, this is the next – Astros, whatever. This is the next rebuild to believe in for two years. And it seems like people are finally like joining my cause. My youngest son wore an Adley Rushman jersey to school today because he's an <laughs> Orioles fan because he watched Orioles games with me during 2020. And I was like, I'm from Boston. And I, I grew up a Red Sox fan. And I'm like, this is the team to cheer for because this is going to be the best team. This is going to be the best team. And there were the AL East and I believe that. And you, and you saw everything go so much better than expected last year that, I mean, I'm I'm happy to talk about the Orioles because I think this is the way the team should be doing it. The way that they're identifying talent, the way that they're bringing guys in, they're using the metrics, and they're improving players in their own system. And it's not just the first round, the second round picks. It's the guys that are even on the fringes are better players. And that's what the Astros have done well. That's what the Dodgers do well. That's how you build a juggernaut, you know? That's it, awesome. It, yeah, it's amazing to hear someone from a national perspective sit here and talk like that about these guys and not just us. Um, people call us crazy sometimes. But um, like among some of this, the national crew, you were we were kind of talking about this a little bit before we came on live, but you were fairly early on the, the Gunnar Henderson hype train. What sold you on the idea that his hot start was a sign of sustainable improvements and that Gunnar Henderson was legit? Because we've talked before about 
going into 2021, we're like, this is a good prospect, right? But it wasn't the number one overall prospect in baseball, Gunnar Henderson, the guy that we watched in the major leagues last year. But what sold you on that early on? Yeah, I think it was a few things. Um, number one, like we knew when Gunnar was drafted, how like explosive he was as an athlete. And I think when we look at baseball athletes, I don't look at it the same as I look at a basketball athlete or you know a football athlete. And even the football, right? It depends on what your position is. But like, I don't really care if you, if you're the fastest guy in the field, and I don't necessarily care if you can jump out of the building. But like, what I care about is like adjustability, how well you move. And Gunner is like an elite mover. Like the, the way he moves at the plate, the way the bat moves in his hand, how quickly he can generate bat speed, his his first step, like some of those things, like you just see it. And he's always sort of had that. Then I started to get reports during 2020 because we were just looking for any information we could get at all. And I was getting reports that, you know, the exit velocities and these sort of things that, that were, we were getting from the, from the alternate site were like really loud. Um, and I can remember somebody put it to me, this contact was like, so, you know, Wander Franco has a 96% contact rate, right? But this is what his max exit velocity is. Gunnar Henderson's like the same age. And this is what his max exit velocity is. I'm not saying that he's better than Wander. That's what the guy said, but it's something to consider. And it was like, all right. Yeah. I think you saw this, then 2021 comes out. You know, I have access to some data. We start to see the skills. Like, the contact is at a point where it really doesn't need to get much better. Sure, it could, but it's above that, like, 70, 71, 72% threshold that it kind of needs to be, um, especially when you have a guy who's, like, looking to do damage. Like, I'm fine if you miss the ball sometimes. <laughs> if you swing and miss, if you do damage and you swing at strikes and you don't swing it, stuff out of the zone and that's what henderson has too is is elite chase rates the guy keeps a real tidy zone he doesn't get overly aggressive um and he's pretty young so i think when you look at like age to competition sort of thing some of that stuff might get even better as he gets more experience you know he gets his you know 1000 plate appearances in the major leagues he's going to be a better player than he is now um and the skills are there the guy can play multiple positions he can run pretty well there's just not a lot that you can knock, you know, he's going to strike out a little bit fine. Like there's plenty of guys that, that strike out a little bit that do damage, you know um, it's, it's so much more important than contact, honestly, it's swing decisions and being able to hit the ball hard and, and do something with it. Right. So I think it was that like just the, the combination of skills, the feedback I was getting at the time and just watching the player. Um, it's pretty easy, you know, and that's that's a big part of it. Yeah, the most impressive thing to me was that even though it was relatively short, small sample size, he had a better chase rate than Adley Rutschman did at the major league level last year, which is pretty crazy. But uh, yeah, you yeah, talked it, about go, go ahead. No, no, it's nuts. I mean, like his his hard hit rate. I was just looking at it. His hard hit rate in the minors last year was fifty two percent. Fifty two percent of the balls that he put in play were over ninety five miles an hour. It doesn't even like that's make nuts. sense, you know. Yeah, and we were talking about the pitching, which luckily Dan Duquette left uh, Michael Eyes and company a couple nice gifts when they took over and Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. But talking about Hall, I mean, he's listed in your rankings, Baseball America's rankings for best fastball, best changeup, best slider, a lefty that can 
throw in the upper 90s and three plus pitches looks like a starter on paper but still seems like a lot of people think Hall is ultimately going to end up in the bullpen in your mind what factors will determine whether he's a, a starter or a reliever yeah and he's going to be on the uh he's going to be in the best pitch mix article that wraps it up uh tomorrow so he made three different pitches fastball <laughs> uh slider i could have included him in the curveball but i was like i don't want to write about him in every single article um and then the changeup, and the, he's got four plus pitches. Like on paper, it's four plus pitches. The problem with Gunner, I mean, excuse me, Gunner DL is like he's kind of like teetering on this edge of not enough command and just enough command. That if there's improvements in that area, I really think that's what it is. I don't want to write him off as a starter. Um, there's a I, most of pitching development happens at the major league level. Right, guys become starters and become pitchers at the major league level. It's just, no matter who it is, um, you pretty much got to get your your teeth kicked in for at least a year before you get good. More often than not, um, and I think that goes for like you look at any ace in the game. Like they didn't become an ace like right away. You know, there there hasn't really been many Doc Goodens or whatever over the years. Like nobody comes up at nineteen, twenty years old and dominates. Um, so I think part of that might just be getting major league experience. He could be a bullpen guy for two years and then, you know, the command starts to click into place and he works up over an off season as a starter. I don't want to write it off at all um, because there's just not many guys that have four legitimately like plus quality pitches. It's just not that many guys like that. So um, that's the one to me that I think kind of, kind of, you know, keeps me from writing him off as a reliever. There's a lot of people who think he's a reliever. A lot of people, you know, in the game, smarter than me, better credentials than me that think he's a think he's a reliever. Um, so it's out there. But you know what? That's what's great about baseball. It's what's great about scouting. Um, is there isn't a single opinion. There's there's a you know there's multitudes. So that's all part of it. And I'm not totally convinced that he is. If he's not, he's going to be like Josh Hader. I mean, it's going to be one of the best left-handed relievers in baseball if he's not a star. Um, but if I'm the Orioles, I mean, you can find relievers. You got you got Felix. Like you got guys in the in the. You got plenty of relievers and guys that are pretty close that are already in the majors. They had a good bullpen last year. You want D.L. Hall to be a starter, so I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't. I mean, unless it's it's grotesque and like okay, you got to reevaluate. But I, I think I think I think they're still going. To If it wasn't for an ill-timed lat injury, Grayson Rodriguez in all likelihood would have graduated from prospect status last season. Do you think there's any change in his short or long-term outlook after that uh, shortened 2022 campaign? Um, Pitchers get hurt, right? Um, And the best predictor of future injury is is past injury. So it certainly makes it more – He's more risky than he was a year ago. Like, I don't think I viewed him as that risky. Um, The biggest, the worst thing that I could say about Grayson Rodriguez last year is that it's not a great body. He's a little stiff. He's not the best mover. But, I mean, he's got feel for five different pitch shapes, like legitimately different pitch shapes. And there's not many guys that can ride it and run it like that and turn over a changeup. They'll throw a cutter and a true slider and a true curveball. There's just not many guys that have that level of feel. And he's a powerful guy, and there's been 
plenty of bad body guys that weren't great movers that were great, you know, pitchers. So there's some risk there now with the injury, I think. But if he comes back, it's all systems go. He adds that mile per hour or two on the fastball that he had in 2021 that he didn't have in 2022, that little bit more hop, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I think he's going to be tremendous. I, I think he's going to be a front of the rotation type of guy because there's just not many guys that have the stuff plus the pitchability. Plus, you got to think that there is some ceiling that he's going to get better once he's facing major league at bats. He's sleeping in real hotel rooms. He's eating major league food. He's got major league coaching. Like all that sort of stuff makes you a little bit better. So, um, I think I, I I'm not that worried, but I do think there's some concern. And there wasn't any question with like another starter to me last year. Like there wasn't anybody else where I was like, it's Grayson and this guy. It was Grayson, really. Mm-hmm. You know, Shane Boss. I mean that that's really who you were kind of putting up there. Um, now it's Yuri and Painter, and they're just. They're just so unique. I mean, we haven't seen guys that were 19 years old that pitch well in Double A, and you know, seemingly are ready for the major leagues before they even turn 20. You know, let's go back to the bats, and you talked about him a little bit there earlier, Jackson Holiday. Um, what we saw coming into the draft process, or as the draft got closer, the hype began to rise a little bit, and then right after the draft, we pretty much heard from Michael Elias that. It, He's not going to get to Delmarva. He's going to stick in Sarasota for the rest of this year. He ends up spending the majority of his time in Sarasota or Delmarva and played extremely well. The walk, the strikeout numbers, phenomenal. It seems like we talked about this last week a little bit that ourselves included and a lot of other Orioles fans may not exactly know what we have in Jackson Holiday. Like just how good of a prospect is he right now? And what do you think his ceiling is in the major league level? I mean, <laughs> Talk about swing decisions, right? Um, right out of the draft. Granted, it's the complex. Then you go to Delmarva. It's still a small sample size. He never chases. Um, it's contact. I think he can stick at shortstop, <laughs> you know, um, or at least be in the dirt. I mean, with that team, there's so many good infielders. Like, who knows? Um, and he's going to add more power. He's still super projectable. I mean, he looks like he's 16 years old. You know, he doesn't look very old, right? And you look at the rest of the Holiday family, guys get pretty strong. I mean, you know, like there's three generations there of like ball players, right? And and two of them are coaches now. Uh, you know, his, his grandfather's coached down here on the Cape for five, six summers now. You know, his father, obviously, borderline sort of Hall of Famer, you know, MLB All-Star. And, um, you know, and then his, his uncle, who's, you know, coaches one of the best college programs in the country so he's one of these guys that's just been around baseball his entire life he's a you know a baseball rat um and the skills are really developed um in terms of you know guys that don't miss in the zone don't chase i mean he had a he had 12 i mean small sample it was a 12 percent chase rate a 10 percent zone miss rate you know um and his average exit velocity was like 89 miles an hour you know um it's going to get better. He's going to get stronger. He's going to hit the ball harder. Um, and he's going to have good pro instruction, good PD around him. I think this is probably going to be the number one prospect in the game. If it's not Jackson Churio, it's probably going to be Jackson Holiday, right? So uh, as Josh Norris has been saying for a while, it's good. And Jackson Merrill. It's going to be the bat- battle of the Jacksons. Like These are the three highest helium players right now, and they're, they're all named Jackson. That's hilarious. Yeah, love that. Um, 
even after trading away Daryl Hernandez, who we had in our top 15 of uh, at the bottom, I think we had him 15th in our updated preseason top 50 coming out. But uh, even after trading him away, the Orioles are absolutely loaded with infield prospects, many of which are near major league ready, including the the three that were in AAA to end the season last year on the top 100, Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz. How do you see the team utilizing them with the likes of Gunnar Henderson, even Ramon Urias, Jorge Mateo, Adam Frazier already on the roster and another wave of infielders right behind them, Kobe Mayo and Jackson Holiday? I mean, it's a good problem to have, obviously, but how do you see this playing out? I think that, you know, certain guys are going to force their way in. Um, if there's one thing that we've seen with the Orioles, there's a reluctancy to push guys to the major leagues before they're 40 man eligible. Um, and if they are, it has to kind of be that year before, like that, you know, that summer before we're like, we're going to put him on the 40 right now and he's better than the last guy and he helps us fine. Like once it makes sense like that, I think that's when we'll see how things shake out. Um, so, I mean, you kind of got to follow the, the 40 man right now where, Gunner will be there. You know, I think Ortiz will probably be up at some point this year. Um, Westberg's still a year out, but it's like I said, it's that sort of funky period, right? Where um, those 2020 guys, because, yeah, because they're not eligible until next year, right? Next, next year. year, right? The college yeah. guys and then, okay. So, yeah, so those guys, you know, I would think you know, probably sometime later this summer. The thing with the Orioles that kind of throws the whole thing into into flux is is the fact that they're kind of competing now, and I guess if they want to, and there's a question as to that, right? Um, do they feel they need to, you know, bring in reinforcements and kind of not focus on the real window versus less earlier window than they had? Um, that's probably going to play into it a little bit too. Because I would imagine that with what they've got now, I understand that um, Jorge Mateo is not a strong offensive player. He's one of the best defensive in like shortstops in baseball. People still pay for that, right? Um, so I don't know. Would they be able to trade him, even if it's for like a couple of prospects or a reliever or somebody else that just is an odd fit for another team? I don't know. It's kind of the same thing with Urias too, right? Where he's another guy that could potentially get moved and then they can just call somebody up. So I, I think you, you sort of got to look at, at the 40-man roster, the way things shake out. Varver's up in the major leagues too. Um, and, you know, he's a solid second baseman, kind of kind of more of a, like a utility player. I don't, I don't view him as an everyday guy, though he hit pretty well at certain points. Um so it's interesting. It's it really to me. It's like you just got to follow that forty man path, and kind of like the Dodgers and the Rays do consistently. They're going to sort of trade out guys as guys become ready and let people answer that call. But I would imagine Ortiz is the first one up because he's on the forty man roster already, um, and then followed by Westberg, and then you know Mayo's probably another year or two out. I think from consideration, unless he has a phenomenal year this year. Um, I think we'll see some of the outfielders before we'll see, you know, all these different infielders, right? But outside of, like I said, Ortiz. Speaking of Mayo, he's one of the players who received top 100 votes but did not make Baseball America's mm -hmm. top 100. 
Heston Kerstad and Dylan Beavers are the other two Orioles that were in that category. Which of those three do you think is the closest to being on the list, and what do each of them need to do this season to ensure that they make their way onto it at some point this year as graduations within the current top 100 occur? It's probably Mayo, but I'd say that it's neck and neck with him and, and Kerstad. Um, the list happened before the AFL had completely happened. I think like if Kerstad gets a full year, you know, he gets to go to double A, hit in that ballpark, all that sort of thing. I think it could push him up. But that said, if Kobe Mayo is just as productive, he's younger, third baseman, like I think he's a legitimate third baseman too. I know it's often a guy that's going to end up moving to first, first base. I think he could play there long term. Um Westberg might be better, but I think that Bayo could play there long term. Um, and yeah, I think that both of those guys could be both of those guys could be on the list within the first couple of weeks of the season because we have a whole like you know group of prospects here that are going to graduate pretty quickly. Gunner's going to graduate pretty quickly. Uh, Corbin Carroll is going to graduate pretty quickly um, because of how we do our lists. Gabriel Moreno will graduate very quickly. And there's a few others. And as those guys start to move off, we have to put players on. Um, and I would imagine Mayo goes first because he's ranked above Kerstad. Um, but I think those guys are, you know, pretty good shot of being on the top 100 at some point by, like, we'll say June 1st. Um, as long as they hit. If they suck, then that's a totally different conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I don't necessarily anticipate that's going to be the case. <laughs> Just to follow up real quick on Kerstad, um, he was a top 100 guy before he lost the season because of myocarditis, and then last year he was set back by a hamstring injury. Um, how much does he have to prove to get back onto the top 100? I, I think he just has to hit in double A. If he hits in double A, it's sort of like everything is caught up to a degree. I mean, you'd like him to be in the major leagues like next year, but okay, with everything that's happened, fine. I think the approach is there. He hits the ball hard. There's contact. And he's a he's a good enough corner outfielder that, you know, if he's whatever, your left fielder, fine. Uh, maybe not left field in Camden now with that that ball <laughs> that checks out. But um yeah, I, I like I, I think it just has to hit. Like if he shows power and he's making contact and he's getting on base, it's gonna be hard for people to deny it. Um and the other thing is and this is something that you know we'll never know. It's hypothetical. He was one of the best college hitters in 2020. He has a full 2020 season. That pick may not look so crazy. It really may not. You know, um, especially when you look at how Spencer Torkelson has hit, <laughs> and he has no defensive value at all. You know, um, it wouldn't shock me if Kerstad's better than Torkelson. I'm not going to bet like bet on it, but I, I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I wouldn't have said that a year ago, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It always it's seems just, like it's just a matter of him doing it. It always seems like the Orioles drafts, you know, other than Adley, obviously, because I mean, I feel like that was pretty much other than you know the, the Bobby Witt thing. It was largely a slam dunk there with Adley, but it was when it was Kirschdad. Everybody's like, why, why, why Kirschdad? And then it's Colton Kowser, and I know a lot of Orioles fans were not happy with the Kowser pick, and now. Kowser ends his first full year pro ball on AAA and is what top 40 on y'all's list, uh, 41 on baseball yeah. America's list. Like it's yeah. The, the draft um, it's, it, it's yeah. Uh, but looking at this kind of zooming out and looking at this system as a whole, I, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but the player development system for the Orioles just, 
really seems to be clicking on all cylinders. And how do you, how did they manage to catch up to the industry so quickly? Do you think? Because it seemed like they were really far behind in pretty much all aspects, from the international side of the game to everything. It seemed like the Orioles were so far behind. And we're talking about a top thirty list five years ago. I mean, outside of the top five, how many guys yeah. are we really talking about? And now we're looking at a, a top 30 with a lot of potential major league talent. How do you think they were able to catch up so quickly? Regime change. I mean, quite frankly, the difference between Elias and where he is in terms of like coming from the Astros and being heavily involved in building some of those teams and just the understanding how far the Astros were ahead of everyone else. Forget the cheating stuff for a second and even though it's probably part of how advanced they were but think about all the little things think about the fact that they have they just won a world series justin verlander walked and they still have a six man rotation and it's entirely homegrown it's the most homegrown world series champion in 30 40 years um and that's the guy that that helped build that came along and you finally are spending money in the international market. I don't know why Duquette didn't spend any money in the international market. I've heard conflicting things. I've heard that ownership didn't want to. I even heard that it was uh, like uh, 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 a personal choice by the Angelos family that they didn't want to be involved in the international market, which I don't know if that's accurate or not. I have no idea. Um, but they didn't do anything there. But even beyond that, the guys that they went after in the draft, the types of profiles that they went after in the draft are, you know, completely different. I mean, Duquette was chasing softball players. It was like guys that made contact, that hit the ball hell, well, hard, that didn't have swing decisions, that didn't have a position. It's like almost the opposite profile of what they're going after. And, you know, I remember the first thing talking to some folks I knew that worked with the Orioles. And I said, what's the biggest difference between Elias and, and Duquette? And it was, things aren't standardized. Everybody has a blast motion sensor in the bottom of their, of their bat. They know what to do with the blast, how to like actually read the blast motion data. Cause it's not something that's all that publicly available, you know, and, and, and the different metrics and why like early connectric matters for this guy, but not as much for this guy. And it's like all these sort of things and just understanding everything and then being able to apply it. And they have coaches that can teach it. So it's not, it's not just looking at the metrics. It's not just identifying the players. It's the fact that they brought in a coaching staff that was able to take the information and then make it tangible for players, which isn't always easy. Like I think people like look at players too often as robots and don't look at them as people. And you have to think these are baseball players that some of them didn't go to college. It doesn't mean they're dumb, but they're guys that didn't go to college that may have very old school coaches and very old school dads that maybe aren't in analytics. And you have to find a way to bridge that communication gap. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to get better or they don't trust it, but you have to get people to buy in. And that's probably some of the makeup stuff that I don't necessarily know like what the process is behind the scenes with the Orioles, but I think it's a lot more than just the data. It's a lot more than just the identification. It's 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 about you know having good coaches and having good coaches that can get buy-in from players. And I see the, the comment down the bottom. It's true. I mean, yes, like, but it's not standardized from rookie ball up to AAA. Like there is individualized plans in terms of how these guys develop, you know. 
where I know at the Yankees, for example, they like they like get onto things. They're like everybody's learning a sweeper. Uh, you know, everybody's gonna swing like this. Like, and they try to like kind of force square pegs and round holes at times. Where, at least from what I've been told and my understanding with folks that live in the organization, that they sort of look for baseline traits and then build around that. Like, I know the big thing with pitchers that they've been trying to target is guys that just throw strikes. Like guys that have excellent command and let's just turn in guys like their scouts like turning guys that have excellent command um and that's an interesting philosophy right like it's kind of what cleveland's been doing like guys that throw the ball throw strikes and have different pitch shapes like we can teach velocity it's the lowest hanging fruit um so whatever i mean it, it just seems like they've they've figured out like their types and they're continuing to just sort of build around that and i think you've got to stick with a process you've got to have a philosophy and they've continued to do that so um, yeah, it's one of the things I admire the most about this organization, at least from the outside looking, you know, um, is that they do stick with a plan and it seemed to work. Um, when other organizations are always changing philosophies and, you know, chasing players that just don't fit their player dev either. Um, you know, more often than not, that seems like it hurts players, right? There's talented guys that just end up with the wrong team. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, so true. It's definitely something we've noticed over the past few years as well. And the last player on the top 100 that we haven't talked about yet is Colton Cowser, in depth at least. And, you know, what an interesting profile gets drafted as a, a contact oriented. Is he going to have enough power? Is he going to stick in center field? And all of a sudden he's striking out a lot, hitting home runs, a lot of doubles. He seems like a three true outcome player, but great wall crate, great uh, swing decisions, it seems like. What's uh, what's the upside there? And Elias also gave an interview, I think, today or yesterday that he expects him to make his major league debut this season. So seems like he's uh, on the fast track to the majors. Yeah, and I think the fact that he has some supporting skills um, in terms of being able to play a defensive role um, and it's valuable in the outfield where, um, you know, I think they have some guys that you could maybe argue a few of them potentially are more I don't know, uh, platoon type of guys. I don't necessarily want to put that fully on them, but I think that, you know, like, I don't know if I want to play Kyle Stowers every day, you know. Um, if they could move Anthony Santander and get some good players back, like, I maybe that piss some people off. I, I don't know. Like, I don't think that would be so bad. Like, you, you more or less develop this rule of five pick into something, and, you know, you have guys that you can bring up who can impact the baseball that actually take walks. Um, so yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like this and it's just like, he could probably be up major leagues day one. Um, the swing decisions are excellent. They've always been excellent. And, it and it seemed like he made some sort of swing tweak. I haven't talked to him or any coaches about this, but just looking at some of the numbers right around July, like his, 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 his launch angle numbers, his hard hit angle numbers. So like launch angle 95 plus like jumps, like two or three degrees, which I would imagine there was some adjustment that was made there in the swing. I have to dig in more in, on, on the video. Um, it's not always necessarily noticeable, but that's at the point where he starts to really take off and, and like just went like bananas for what would he had like 19 home runs in like a month and a half or oh, something like that. Cause the numbers like initially in the beginning of the season weren't great. He wasn't really hitting for powers. Like the contact numbers weren't that good. He was just getting on base like a ton. Um, and then things kind of went off for him. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's a center fielder necessarily. I've heard some people say that they think, you know, that he could stick in center field fine. Um, I don't know if I see that, but if, like, this is, like, a really good right fielder, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, certainly not. And uh, switching to the, the pitching side, it seems like, you know, like you were talking about, they have their profiles that they like. They want a hoppy fastball. So it seems like you have to be 6'3 or taller to get Michael Elias' attention these days. Um, you know, they want to teach a sweeper. Maybe they feel comfortable teaching change-ups to people. But what do you make of the Orioles' philosophy when it comes to building up their pitching in the minor leagues? Um, through the draft, it seems like they only, with uh, some exceptions here and there, they, they're going in day two, day three of the draft. They're going after pitchers with their profiles and targeting pitchers like Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, and trades. Uh, do you think this strategy is going to be enough to to compete in the AL East uh, long term? Like we mentioned, the Astros, they're, they're homegrown. Maybe they're just waiting for the international side to catch up a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just depends on what the dev is. Um, they haven't gone after, like, a ton of high-end arms, like you've said. You know, it's mostly been um, polished guys, right, that are a little bit later in the drafts. Um, I said throw strikes, different pitch pitch shapes. Um, they're definitely looking at data. I think that they are probably more model driven um, when it comes to the, the drafting pitchers. A lot of other teams, they probably aren't just in general. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's tough because I don't know if they have if they have a true identity right now, right, with a lot of these guys because they've just gone so heavy on position players they haven't made huge you know um investments in those guys and a guy like bomber hasn't really pitched yet um so i don't know i mean like that's probably an area where uh i'm a little bit more deficient in terms of like i know arm brewster some of those guys but i'm not seeing like a ton of like pop-up guys uh within the Orioles system in terms of arms you know um but maybe maybe that's something that's going to change, you know, uh, this year. I don't know. Are there arms that you guys are, are pretty excited about? Like Noah Denoyer. Um, it's true. Denoyer was pretty good in AFL. Ryan Watson had a pretty solid year, but not sure what the strikes, upside yep. is there. Yep. Yeah. Carlos Tavera is is my yeah. guy that I'm looking. He he's kind of he scares me a little bit. Um, you know, walk issue. You know, is he a reliever starter? I don't know if he can stick as a starter, but and Tavares, a guy I know the organization has really been pumping hard the last really two years at this point. But he's got a crazy pitch too. Like, is it a slider? Or does he have a wacky curveball? It's a slider. Slider, right. probably. Yeah. Because yeah. I can remember writing him up. I'm like trying to look right now. Um, and he was a guy that popped to me as I was like updating the Orioles board later in the season. Let me see if. And yeah, we don't have a report on him, so I must not ever published it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking at like their draft now, because honestly, like a lot of their, I just know hitters, you know, um, even like guys late, like Connor Young, uh, they just haven't gone after like a ton of, a ton of pitching, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, speaking of Carter Young, there, I think it was, wasn't it you that broke the news that he was signing with the Orioles? What? Yeah, I, I broke the what dollar do, value too. <laughs> what? What do we? What do we make about uh, Carter Young and, and what he brings to this organization? Well, I think they could. I'm guessing they must have not been able to get the Nolan McLean deal done, right? Mm -hmm. and yeah. Maybe that was yeah. why it happened. 
Um, but another guy with good swing decisions, he hits the ball hard. He was a good defender. And then he had a shoulder injury and he never really got right after that. Like he was a guy we projected as a first rounder heading into that summer. He wasn't right. Like late in the season. And that's when like the strikeouts went crazy. Didn't play during the summer because I believe he had a shoulder procedure and then came back with Vandy and struggled. And I mean, he transferred. So I, I don't know if there were other issues there, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and Ended up going in the draft and got a decent, you know, a decent payday. Uh, he's an excellent defender. He hits the ball hard. The swing decisions are really good. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens, but it's sort of right within that that profile. He kind of ha- he's like you know SEC kid had a big name, good defender, hits the ball hard, good swing decisions. Kind of reminds you of Jeff Baby a little bit. You know, it's the same sort of knock. Uh, with contact and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, it's sort of a no risk pick though, for sure. So I think it's actually a good segue to um, this question, which is when you look through the Orioles system, are there any guys that stand out to you as being kind of under the radar names? Yeah, it's funny. It seems like less and less <laughs> than there had been in previous years. Cause a lot of these guys are like, have like popped out. Um, I know we haven't really seen him a ton because he's been injured. I still think Reed Trimble is a pretty good player, man. Um, I thought he was good in college. I thought he was a little bit underrated in college. Um, he's a really good athlete. He's a good defender. Um, the swing decisions could probably be a little bit better. He's a little bit more of a contact guy than like what's typical. But, I mean, what has he played? Like 50 total professional games? You know, maybe. Um, so let's see what happens there. I liked, I liked uh, John Rhodes. I liked the swing when I saw him in the Cape. I thought he was going to be good. It hasn't really clicked uh, the way that we thought it would. Um, Arm Brewster, who I mentioned before, I think is I think is pretty legit. Um, I like Billy Cook. I don't know. I don't know if Billy Cook's a- I really don't. Um, but I like Billy Cook, like, coming out of the draft. Like, he was one of my draft sleepers because he does, like, a lot of those things well, um, like swing decisions and it makes contact. Uh, but I think he's going to be just like, oh, man, who is the D3 dude that Toby he, just, Welk? He, he just retired, right? Was it Toby Welk or was it uh... – Did Toby Welk retire or no? No, was Toby I don't Welk. think so. No, okay. he didn't really play last year because he was hurt, but – I, th- I thought he retired, actually, but I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Could be breaking yeah. news. I don't know. Yeah, I, I hope <laughs> I didn't just break news. Um, I, I read it somewhere if it, if it wasn't, so I could be incorrect about that. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, it's kind of tough. All these guys are popular now. There's not many like there's not many sleeper sleepers left, right? And um, the guys on the 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 on the complex like i haven't seen i don't have you know a ton of insight there um you know sammy basalo or whatever his name is um i haven't seen him he's ranked pretty highly anyway um trying to think i'm like looking through names here now too just to even pull somebody else but i don't think so i think we know all of them i mean unless you're like a big douglas hodo to the third guy he was okay (laughs) 
you know, I liked Robert Newstrom a lot, but I don't. I think I'm. I think I'm probably over my skis on that one. Um, and if you're into like defense first catchers who could probably have like a major league career, it's uh, it's Silas like already like you know he's got bloodlines and he's a great defender behind the plate. If he hits enough, then you know he probably has a major league career. Maybe maybe he's Adley's backup long term. Could be. I think I he know. walked like six of his first eight plate appearances when he after he got drafted. <laughs> we were calling him a walk god, so that's a good pick. <laughs> if he does that and you know hits a couple of tanks, he'll be fine. That will get you up to the major leagues if you if you're a good defender. You know? Yeah. But I mean, all the sleepers we would we would have had this conversation last year, and we would have had five or six guys that all broke out. You know, um, where I think people are a little bit more game. Right, like no one's gonna call Judd Fabian a sleeper, right? Um, They don't really necessarily have those, but it's probably gonna be somebody. I mean, you know, maybe Max Wagner has a crazy year. He certainly did, like you know, last year at at uh, at Clemson. Um, If those skills carry over, maybe that guy pops. You know. I don't know some of the, the, the later guys uh, in their draft in terms of guys that I saw in the Cape or anything like that. Um, Major Walt is kind of interesting, I guess. I mean, there's some names here, so we'll see. Cool. Well, Jeff, um, my understanding, you actually are going to be writing reports in the Baseball America Prospects Handbook for the first time this year. Is that correct? Yeah, yep. I... Uh, I had four different chapters this year. It's already like gone to the publisher before Christmas. Um, but yeah, I had uh, the Blue Jays, I had the Cardinals, I have the Rockies, uh, and I have the Astros. So, so we'll look forward to that coming out. You'll have Jeff's work in there, and then John Mioli, who's been on our show several times, wrote up the Orioles. So we're looking forward to that being released, as well as all the great coverage over at Baseball America. Jeff, before you go, uh, just let our listeners know what they can expect over at BA in the coming weeks and where they can follow you on Twitter. Sure, yeah. Um, just, you know, I think we're, we're going to be rolling out more college stuff as that season starts to roll out. Um, this is kind of a dead period for the minors. It's like this period between, like, the lists. So the top 30s, those will start to roll out on on uh, the site. Or top 40s because we, ha- we list, like, an extra 10 um, that's not in the book this year, but it is online. Um, we have our draft, uh, excuse me, our college preview magazine just came out. Uh, if you subscribe to the magazine, the Top 100 magazine will be out the week after that. Rolling out a lot more fantasy baseball content as well. We hired uh, Dylan White, uh, who's going to be doing uh, a majority of our fantasy content now. It's kind of exciting. Uh, we just, you know, we cover all levels of baseball, man. So we just try to stick with that stuff. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me thank on. Thank you. Yeah. Can't thank you enough. Enjoy your night. Jeff Ponce of Baseball America. We'll dive in now to the trade that took place last week, that was announced last week, and that was the deal that sent Cole Irvin to the Baltimore Orioles in exchange for infield prospect Daryl Hernandez. Irvin was not the only player to come over in that trade as right-handed pitcher Kyle Verbitsky, who pitched an A-ball last year in the A system, was included in the deal as well. And we're going to try to break down every facet of this trade tonight because, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's the first time in the three years that we've been doing this show that we have seen a prospect of significance being moved out of the Orioles organization 
to get a player who's going to help the major league team win now. So we'll start with Irvin, who is the headliner in this deal. Originally a fifth-round pick by the Phillies in 2016 out of the University of Oregon, Irvin debuted at the Phillies in 2019 and struggled over parts of the next two seasons with the Phillies before joining the A's in 2021 when he was a cat acquired for cash considerations. Over the past two seasons in Oakland, Irvin proved to be a reliable innings eater who rarely ever walked batters. Last year, he threw 181 innings after throwing 178 in the third in 2021. And in each of the last two seasons, he has made at least 30 starts. So the Orioles picking up a 29-year-old who has four years of team control left, who can eat innings, doesn't walk a lot of guys. And in this new configuration of Candom Yards, now that we're one year into it, will probably have some success keeping the ball in the ballpark as he did in Oakland. Um, so we'll start here. There's some things to like about Irvin, as I just mentioned, durable, but he's also a guy who does not strike out a lot of batters. You look at the, some of the batted ball data against him last year and hitters were able to square up with him at times. So Nick, I'll start with you here. Just looking at Irvin, what do you think, the Orioles see in him, and what do you think he does for the rotation right now? Just, I mean, first of all, my general thought about this trade is how did, how do you pull this kind of trade off? To be completely honest, um, but you get Irvin, like you said, he's got four years of control left. He's good. I mean, he's solid. He's a solid major leaguer. He's proven it for the last two years at the major league level that it, what he does works. I mean, 178 innings, and then 180 innings each of the last two years. He's been worth a combined 3.4 F4 over those past two seasons with Oakland. We talk all the time when discussing trades, right? Like the years of control are so valuable and you got to get out with four years of control here. He's not going to be a free agent. until after what is that? 2026 season. That would be, I think. Um, so yeah, like that's huge for Daryl Hernandez, who like, we love him. We just interviewed him a couple weeks ago. Like this, this is becoming a trend of us interviewing guys and they get traded or cut uh, at this point. But um. Like for Dale Hernandez, who was what the I don't know sixth best shortstop or middle infield prospect in in this system, right? But I guess with Irvin, like I think at a minimum he is an experienced MLB arm who can be a reliable placeholder over the next year or two. While we see like was Dean Kramer's rebound last year for real or not? Was Bradish is he a rotation fixture or not? Like, let Grayson take his lumps. Jeff just mentioned that interview. You know, it takes guys time when they get to the majors. They're going to take their lumps. They're going to get beat around in the beginning. Let Grayson figure it out. Let's figure out what Deal Hall is. Let's let John Means come back from his injury. And in the meantime, you've got Irvin here, who's a good floor guy, who I think can just kind of keep things stable during what may be, you know, some some rocky times ahead for this rotation. Hopefully not. Hopefully Kramer and Bradish are, are legit and we're we're solid there. But he kind of mentioned himself too that he spent the last 30 minutes of that introductory phone call with Chris Holt with the Holt explained to him like here's all the areas of your game that we've identified that we think you can get better in so like you know is there more there could they get a, a three war pitcher out of Irving next year and if so that's fantastic for your sixth middle infield prospect like I think it's it's just a solid floor guy who doesn't walk anybody yeah the strikeouts aren't aren't there but He's got a fantastic defense behind him with Gunner and Mateo and a Gold Glover and Urias, who who knows where he's going to play if he's going to be on this lineup. He's a Gold Glover, Mountcastle, Speedy Outfield, Rutschman behind the plate. It's 
he's got a lot of tools behind him. So yeah, strikeouts aren't there, but the walks aren't either. And he's he's got a good defense to pitch behind him. So I, I think he the odds of seeing an improved Irving are, are fairly solid. Yeah, it was that last point you said that got me the most excited about this trade. My initial reaction was, oh, the Orioles traded for a starting pitcher and they traded away a prospect. And then I saw it was to the A's for Irvin. I was like, oh, you know, not the top of the line guy that I was hoping for. But the more I hear about it, the more I like it. And even besides that, just to get a uh, legit starting pitcher who's pitched like 175, 180 innings the last couple years, plus a pitching prospect for a guy who we were high on, who we liked, Daryl Hernandez for sure, but for like a top 20 prospect. Uh, and, he, you know, he was really, where were you going to find a place for him to play in Baltimore anyway? That was like, okay, you got to do that every time, no matter what. Uh, but it's like you said when he was talking about his conversation with Chris Holt, and that just made me appreciate this organization even more than I already did, where it's like they clearly targeted this guy came up with this plan. Here's how we could improve him. And they immediately pitched that to him. And it just shows that they think they can, whether it's add a couple miles per hour to his fastball, which it was interesting that he said he's sitting higher than he usually is around this time. So maybe that's already on the way, a little bit of a velo increase. But I think his his sinker was getting hit around a lot. His four-seam fastball was a lot better. Maybe the, the team says ditch the sinker or use it a lot less. And you know they're going to try to add a slider, whether it's the sweeper or just a more traditional uh, tighter break. And maybe they're going to say, hey, John Means, you can't pitch right now, but maybe you could show him your grip for your changeup to make it a little bit better. I don't know. But you know they have a plan, and he doesn't walk guys. I, I think he's a great fit, a lefty in, in this new left field section of the ballpark. It's a, it's a good fit. And at the very least, the Orioles are going to have guys to run out there every day now that you can at least know they're going to keep you competitive most nights and that's saying something for the Baltimore Orioles fans out there but uh and going even him and Kyle Gibson it's like yeah they're not the sexiest names they're not the uh the guys that you were hoping for when the offseason started but it's not like they just said oh this guy we can get the cheapest they they targeted these people for a reason these players and I think Kyle Gibson, he added, what do you know, a, a nasty sweeping slider at the end of the season that maybe they think, hey, this is something we can catch early, kind of like they did with Lyles the year before and make something out of it. But, you know, it might not be the, the flashiest moves, but I think, I think it could all work out. What I like about this move is that you now have two spots in the rotation where you have pitchers that are proven – you know, durable pitchers that can take the ball every fifth day. Cause I think as we're going to talk about in a little bit here, you're going to have to be creative with how you manage some of these younger pitchers innings this season. Now you got a guy in Irvin who maybe, you know, maybe you can count on 185, 190 innings from him this year. You know, we're further out from the pandemic. Maybe we can start to see starter totals go back up this year. So you're giving your bullpen a rest and you're able to kind of leverage the rest of the rotation in a little bit different way. And I think, too, that the Orioles have some factors working in their favor that they didn't have in the past. As Bob said, and I agree with him, they would not have brought him in if they didn't have a plan for him. This is not the kind of move that I think you would have seen in the past where we need a left-handed pitcher. This guy's a left-handed pitcher with a good ERA, so let's go trade for him. Uh, there's there's going to be a strategy here. 
Whether or not it's going to work remains to be seen, but there is going to be a strategy to try to get Irvin to be better. Then you factor in the Camden Yards now as a much more neutral ballpark with the dimensions change. And then on top of that, the balanced schedule next year where you're not going to have to face teams in the American League East as often. Now, as I'm sure Irvin would tell you, the American League West was not exactly easy last year. So I think that you know you don't want to overstate how much better the AL East is than the AL West because the AL West can be tough in its own right. But that uh, that is one less thing you have to be worried about now. So I think you know as far as Irvin goes, there's a lot to like. And like Nick said, maybe he's a placeholder so that as you start to get the pitchers you have um, adjusted to the major leagues or you get to a point somewhere down the line where you do bring in an ace through trade or free agency, Irvin might have a couple of years of team control left and you could decide to hold on to him or possibly flip him. So there, there's a lot, I think, with Irvin to like. Yeah. He even has a minor league option available, I think, too. So, like, I mean, hopefully we don't have to use that, but it's still there. Uh, I th- if you would have told me the return... Like, I don't I don't do the fake the mock trades. I hate them. I, I get flashbacks to when I was writing at some BS website uh, many years ago, but and they just pushed that crap on us. But um like I, I hate it. I I whatever. So I don't really know like a good cop here or whatever, but if you would have told me like this is the return the Orioles are getting, they traded a, a, an infield prospect take a guess who it is. Like I probably would have guessed like at least Joey Ortiz to be completely honest. And it's like, it was Daryl Hernandez. I mean, he's proven it at high A. He hasn't even proven it at double A yet. Like I said, he's fifth or sixth best middle infield prospect in the system. Probably seventh in terms of ceiling. I was looking at that even like you look at Luis Almeida, who was just signed. He's probably got a higher ceiling than Hernandez. It, it's, I, I think this is a, an, an unbelievable trade for what it is. Um, for what it is, like that's it. Vivek's comment there, yeah, four years of control, like just hammer that home. That's it's fantastic. But my mind also, we're a prospect podcast. I think about prospects all day, every day, uh, probably too much. But in my first thought too was even like, hey, if he works out well and the Orioles are able to get more out of him, or he's at least proven at the major league level that he's a serviceable you know, three and a half basically war pitcher of the last two years is not bad at all. A guy like Drew Rom being able to watch that or pick his brain in spring training could be huge. You know, he doesn't have to look up to Alex Wells and Zach Lowther and Bruce Zimmerman. And I know like those guys are all lefties who don't have the big velo, who got to the majors and it hasn't worked out. It's not going to work out for any of those guys. I know Bruce Zimmerman, I may or may not be on an island there, but I think he's kind of like DJ Stewart, Francisco territory now where it's we're talking about him a little little too long at this point and it's just not going to work out anymore. But you bring in this lefty who doesn't have outstanding blow away velo fastball and guys like Rom and some others in the organization. Now you're looking up to him. Like I just thought about that as well. Like one other aspect of, of this trade to think about as well. It's, I just can't believe you pull off a trade like this for, for what they were again, for what it is. And I know it's as far as like, if you look at the whole, the off season as a whole, it's not very exciting. We were talking about this earlier. No one wrote up this trade. Like, Baseball America didn't write it up. Fangraphs didn't write it up. And they write up every trade that happens mm-hmm. in the offseason. It's like, why did nobody write about uh, this trade? I get it may be largely insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but it's a solid safe floor on this rotation that needs it. So, yeah, and it's 
I was worried about who that first prospect was going to be, and at least we we didn't rip the bandaid off, but uh, at least we're getting this out of the way now, and it's it feels better than I thought it would, to be honest. Yeah, and it's it is pretty crazy. How to, I, we knew Elias could trade away guys for more value than maybe we expected. Like we knew he was pretty good at the reverse of this when he's trading. But it, if this is the trend that's going to happen when he's buying players in trades, then uh, wow, he's a he's a master master tradesman. But uh, yeah, and then it's win win because Daryl Hernandez, guy we like, he's going to a system where he's probably a top ten prospect immediately for them if not at least right around there. And he's got a much clearer path, much clearer shot to major league playing time, whether it's, you know, if he breaks out in a big way this year at the end of this year or some point next year, the year after he's in a much better situation as well. So congrats to him. I I think he will make his major league debut with Oakland and and that's cool. But, uh, and, oh yeah, we also got another prospect back in the trade, a pitching prospect, right, Zach? Let's talk about Hernandez for a minute. We had him ranked 15th on our preseason top 50 list. Um, and for those of you who are patrons, our new 50th ranked prospect will drop on Friday. So if you haven't subscribed to Patreon, you should do so now so you can hear that. But Hernandez, a guy that we all liked, um, a guy who broke out in a big way last year, seems to at least be one of those high floor prospects that if things go the right way could be a starter at the major league level for a while. And someone who we know that many people in the organization were very high on personally, I'll read here actually from Zach Cole, who was the Ironbirds hitting coach last year, called her nays on Twitter, a hard worker and a great player with amazing talent. More importantly, he's an amazing person who affected so many people's lives, people slash lives in the O's org. So pretty high praise from one of his coaches last year. On one hand, it does sting a little bit because you feel like the ceiling, maybe the Orioles hadn't quite tapped into Hernandez fully yet, but at the same time, you look at the strides he made in the last year, but compare that to what's ahead of him, he could possibly be major league ready in the next couple of years, and there are all of these players in front of him, plus Jackson Holiday right on his tail. So. This does feel like an area surplus for the Orioles. Yeah, I just you look at the makeup. Yeah, it was just undeniable. I mean, going back to Delmarva, and we know he was not happy about that at all, and he made the most of it. And you know, Sam Jelinek giving us one of the best stories of the year. How he he's what is he twenties at the time? Was he twenty one? I don't even think he was twenty one yet at the time, or he might have been just turned twenty one at the beginning of last year, but. Regardless, he's a young man himself who was put back in a situation where he did not want to be in, and he became the leader of that Delmarva team with all these younger international guys helping them with the basics of what to wear for a game. I mean, it's it speaks to what kind of man he is. So I, I think that is great to, to give him his moment here and talk about that. And, yeah, I think with Oakland, like, you know, I think a lot of people pro- would probably say he's more probably a future utility guy. And that very well may be the case, but he's got speed. He's super athletic. He's an athletic athletic now. Um, I'll just <laughs> sign off the podcast after that one. Um, but like he can steal bases. He can hit the ball surprisingly hard. Uh, he's got surprising pop. Uh, we, he talked about it himself. You know that shortstop starter kit, and he talked about he prides himself on 
trying to get all five of those tools great um, as best he could. So I don't know, maybe a new organization. He's If he starts in a year in AA, he's going back to Texas. He's from Texas. He's from El Paso um, or spent a lot of time growing up in El Paso. Uh, so if he's playing in Midland, Texas, I'm, I'm, that could be 12 hours or 16 hours apart. I don't know because it's Texas, but <laughs> he's at least back in his, his home state. Maybe you know playing there, playing with an organization that wants him, that really wanted him. Uh, it's a good reset. Maybe something really clicks for him, and he's a future shortstop for Oakland or a second baseman or a third baseman. I don't know, but yeah, I wish him all the best, and I, I really do hope that he's in that A's uniform in the next year or two playing against the Orioles. I, I'm still going to cheer for him. Yeah, and it's pretty cool to be able to now – you know, I've, we've always said, you know, it's still – you know, we're following these guys. If we trade them away, we'll still be able to root for them. And this is like the first time where it's like, yeah, it actually we will be able to. It's, it'll be weird to see him in a different uniform just because I don't know about you guys, but I'm always just envisioning these guys in the Orioles uniform as they're coming up, obviously. But uh, it's it's cool to be able to root for him. And I'm sure there will be players littered throughout MLB in the next three to five years that came up as Orioles prospects and, uh, and made it somewhere else just because there's only so much room on a roster. But And speaking of that, I mean, he was probably going to be, what, the opening day shortstop for, for Double A Bowie. Uh, and they're still going to have uh, Kobe Mayo, Colin Burns, Adam Hall, Luis Valdez there with Ben Cosme, Max Wagner, Adam Crampton, Noel Berth Romero. There's just there's guys coming up. Jackson Holiday, who knows, he might be there. So there really was like, where's the playing time going to go for all these guys? Well, now you solved a little bit of that crunch problem as long as everybody's healthy. Yeah. And Vivek made that comment there earlier too. I, I forgot to bring this up earlier. Yeah, he was Rule Five eligible after this season, so like he's probably gone in the Rule Five draft next year. To be completely honest, like where where are you going to protect him next year? Um, yeah, I, I think I mean, yeah. So you're able to get a proven major league starter right now who still has a, a little bit of an upside, plus another prospect, which is another kicker in all of this. Like that's. Yeah, great. So, yeah, let's dive into the prospect the Orioles got back in that deal, and that is right-handed pitcher Kyle Verbitsky. He fits the Orioles' type. He's tall, listed at six foot seven, two 235 pounds. He was drafted by the A's in the 17th round out of Penn State in the 2021 draft. In his full-season debut last year, he pits at the A-ball level, starting out at low-A Stockton before making the jump to high-A Lansing late in the year in 126 and a third innings pitched. He struck out 140 batters while walking just 30. Baseball America recently cited him as having the best command in the A system. That was obviously before the trade. And one thing I should note here, um, for longtime followers of the minor leagues, you may know that Stockton is in the California League, a notoriously hitter-friendly environment. And Verbitsky did well there, 86 and two-thirds innings pitched, a 4.78 ERA with 99 strikeouts against just 20 walks. So you're looking at a tall right-hander with what looks to be plus command coming over in this trade. We don't know a ton about Ritzky at this point, but still a guy with an interesting profile, probably someone you would slot in the high-A Aberdeen's rotation to start next year. And he certainly fits a type that the Orioles have, so they clearly see something in him. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um <laughs> He, like Vivek said, he's kind of Justin Armbruster-esque because he's tall. I mean, he's an Orioles pitcher. He, of course, is going to be tall. Uh, to me, 
Peter Van Loon was the first person that came to mind when I saw his stature and good numbers at that level. I mean, it's not, actually, the numbers weren't all that great. It's more of the he struck out a lot of batters, didn't walk many. I think he was voted best control of any A's prospects. So, again, that's like goes to what Jeff was talking about earlier in this podcast. The Orioles are looking for guys who can throw strikes, have good command, and then they can work with that from there. Um, to me, he's... I could see him being like a Brian Baker. I feel like eventually if you move this guy to the bullpen, you let him ramp up the, the velocity a little bit coming out of the pen. I mean, that size, you know, Felix Bautista, Brian Baker, and now we got Kyle Verbitsky. I mean, let's go. Bash brothers. Make, <laughs> it's like bash triplets, bash quadruplets. I mean, it seems like they also just go after you have to be tall. And then if you're on Baseball America's org list of like top control, like you're probably a future Oreo. Antonio Velez last year from Miami. Uh, and same situation, too. I don't think Velez was a top 30 guy in Miami system. Verbitsky, I didn't see him on any top 30 list, but you mentioned the strikeouts. I think he led the A's entire minor league organization with 140 strikeouts. If he didn't lead it, he was right up there at the top. Five and a half percent walk rate. I mean, just huge strikeout to walk numbers. You mentioned the command there. I did find some data, and I don't know how super reliable this is, but uh, it's shout out to uh, at Cardinals Reek, <laughs> great name on Twitter, and then uh, at uh, Will uh, Shug Stats. I know I've seen him around on Twitter, but both these guys do a great prospect work. Uh, if you find them, they actually put out a graphic. After the trade, again, I don't know how accurate this data is or anything like that, but according to their graphic, Verbitsky, essentially a 92-mile-an-hour fastball, 86-mile-an-hour uh, changeup, which is the second-most-used pitch. Then he throws a slider about 84 miles an hour and a 78-mile-an-hour curveball. Good swing at, uh, swing and miss and chase rate numbers on all those pitches. And he also had, for Verbitsky's fastball, even though it's only 92 miles an hour, it had a 20.2 uh, IVB. And according to Jeff Ponce at Baseball America, who he had those like best fastball, best slider, all those articles at Baseball America, in the the at the to preface each of those articles, he kind of does like a vocab section. And so, if you aren't familiar with IVB, which I am not very much educated on on that when it comes to fastball trait, but it determines how much a baseball moves up or down from a central point of zero. And so, it's good forcing fastballs. This is quoting Jeff's article here. Uh, good forcing fastballs average between 17 to 18 inches of induced vertical break. Anything above 19 inches is considered elite. The pitchers capable of hitting 20 inches of induced vertical break are in an upper echelon. And according to this graphic, uh, Verbitsky's is 20.2. So, um, I mean, take that for uh, for what you will, for the limited information we have about him. So you're saying he's got a hoppy fastball. <laughs> Trademark. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> We'll go into some listener questions here because um, we got some had some good ones come in before the show. And I'm going to go with one from Ben here to start off, which is how would you treat Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall in the majors this year, given factors such as innings limits and limited rotation spots? I'll start with Bob here. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. It's going to be a, quite the spring training battle for starting pitching. I mean, you would assume it's going to be Kramer, Bradish, Irvin, Gibson, those four probably locks, considering health. And then you got D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez, Tyler Wells, Austin Voth. John Means is coming back eventually. So, yeah, I, I think you could do six-man rotation maybe and have Grayson and D.L. or Grayson and 
Wells or, you know, there, that's one option or a tandem, maybe Grayson, Grayson and DL day once a week. Uh, yeah, sign me up for that. That'd be fun. Um, I think Grayson is going to end up with more innings at the end of the season than a lot of people expect. I think a lot of people are saying like between 120 and 130 innings. I could see him getting around 150, 155. I think based on the way the Orioles used Tyler Wells last year, I feel like they're looking more at pitches per appearance than innings necessarily. So as long as he is, you know, not walking a bunch of guys and getting that pitch count up really high, I I think, uh, they're going to be able to manage him to last all year. Maybe have a phantom IL stint like they kind of did with Cal Bradish. That's my theory. At least I have no idea if that was a serious injury or not, but, uh, yeah, I, to not answer the question at all, that's my thoughts. No, um, I think I would have him, I, w- I think I'd start the year with a six man rotation or at least with him. Maybe he can kind of fill in on the sixth day. I don't know how it would work, but I want him in the rotation to start the year and I want him in there all year somehow. I have no idea how this rotation is going to play out. Um, there are a lot of names, a lot of good options, I think. But yeah, Grayson, I don't know. In the beginning, I, I, for, I don't believe that Rodriguez or Hall, neither of them are starting the year in AAA. They're not going to see AAA unless there's an unfortunate injury and they're rehabbing down there. They're, just, they're not going back to AAA at this point, I don't think. Uh, Grayson, he's not going to be throwing six innings either to start. DL Hall is probably not going to be throwing six innings to start either but it's i i honestly don't know how to answer the question to be completely honest like it's just it's wait and see how spring training plays out and and go from there it's it will take care of himself you can't have enough arms there are plenty of options there it'll all work out injuries are going to happen we know that um yeah it it will be interesting though to see uh, what the orioles decide to do yeah, for the first time in a while, you actually have an interesting rotation makeup going into spring training, at least in terms of upside. I think that they're going to try to be creative somehow in how they manage their innings, exactly how that looks remains to be seen. But I think at the very least, you could see D.L. Hall, Austin both, uh Tyler Wells early on deployed in some piggybacking situations if the Orioles <clears throat> want to go that route. So I've got a question here from Vivek. Looking at the current roster, is there any trade you see coming before the season starts? I'll go with Nick here. Um, just dead air, dead air, <laughs> dead air. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. I could see maybe one more trade happening. I don't think it would be a blockbuster type deal, though. Probably like a fringier type move. Probably moving a reliever. I mean, we talked about that a lot. I mean, the bullpen is still so so stacked. And then, yeah, depending on what the Orioles want to do, like if they think that Deal Hall is going to work more out of the bullpen, then yeah, all right, you, you can probably move one of these pieces. You've got Michael Givens, who's a safe option that they brought in. So yeah, if I'm going to just repeat what I've said before, that if you think Ciano Perez overperformed a little bit, then maybe you try to move him or Politi. I know you just took him in the rule five draft. I don't really know where he fits in. Um, you know, if another team may have been interested in him in the rule five draft, you can shop him. That'd be great as well. I don't see Tate getting moved. Maybe Baker even sell high on Brian Baker. If I had to take a guess, it'd probably be a reliever. I don't think they trade Mateo and I don't think they trade Arias before the season starts. Interesting. I kind of, do think they'll trade one of them. Um, I think there could be a trade or two. Nothing blockbuster, like Nick said. I don't, I don't see 
unless they have plans to combine uh, Jordan Westberg and Dean Crane. Maybe they're, they signed, they traded for Irvin so they could trade another starter for a bigger starter. I don't know. That doesn't really make sense to me. So I could see a couple lesser trades. Like I still am not sure if Austin Hayes is on the opening day roster or in the organization by the time. That's a great one. Trade him. Trade him tomorrow. <laughs> I forgot that uh, one. <laughs> same with like, I feel like you can trade one of Arias and or Mateo. Mateo, I feel like maybe you keep him around because if he starts hot with the bat and keeps that elite defense, his value is going to go up significantly there potentially. And I do think there's going to be another uh, Tanner Scott slash Cole Saucer type trade where it's maybe Keegan Aiken and Joey Crable or Keegan Aiken and somebody. I just, I could see Keegan Aiken get traded. That's what I'm trying to say. But yeah, I do think there'll be a trade or two before the season starts. Yeah, I don't expect a blockbuster move from the Orioles in terms of trades until a deadline. Until the deadline at this point, I think if you look around the game, um, and evidence of this is kind of in Pablo Lopez trade, which I didn't really see the makeup of that deal coming. I wasn't surprised he ended up in Minnesota, but I didn't really see the makeup of that deal coming where the Marlins threw prospects into the deal to get a proven major league bat back in return for Lopez, which you know. They want to go for it. I don't think that's going to work for them, but okay, let them try it. Um, if you have enough teams in that thinking in that mode right now, it's going to be really hard to pull off a blockbuster trade between now and spring training. So I agree with you guys that if you see a trade, it's going to be from an area of surplus like the bullpen where maybe there's that like one part of the roster where they feel like they're a little deficient in spring training or just going into camp and they move a reliever or try to, round that out. So go to a pet, uh, question from Patrick, kind of a specific hypothetical, but let's say the veterans and he cites Arias, Mateo and Adam Frazier come out of the gate strong while the young guns. And in this case, it would be Kyle Stowers, Taryn Vavra, Jordan Westberg and Joey Ortiz, um, perhaps struggling in AAA. Would you prefer the team ride the hot hands and try to win this year or leave the young guys in and let them try to figure it, try and figure it out. Go with Bob to start off. Well, I think the team expects to be competing. I, I think they're going to ride the hot hand in that case. Cause I think it's pretty, spe- like he said, it's pretty spe- specific <laughs> hypothetical situation, but uh, yeah, I think you would expect at least some of those guys to bounce back. And while the, the veteran talents playing well, you, you got to keep running them out there. Cause you're developing guys but you're also trying to compete for a playoff spot and games in the beginning of the season count just as much as the games in the later in the season yeah we already know that they're not afraid they're not going to be afraid to sit the the young guys uh and ride the adam frazier's every single night uh if they need to which i'm fine with like they're going to try to win as many ball games as possible and but this is also why like you don't see these prospects and we we hate it just as much as everyone else does. But this is why once these guys reach AAA, it takes so long for them to finally get that call up to the major leagues because they don't want, they know guys are going to struggle, but they don't want to have to send those guys back down to AAA again. And so, yeah, if it's, if it's a situation where they can, you can come up and if we need to put you on the bench for two weeks or something, why you sit there and learn, I think that's a point Bob's brought up a lot of times that the organization has said like, they feel like you can still get tremendous value by sitting on the bench and learning uh, on the off days or just sitting there learning by not being in the lineup, then 
you know, if that's what it takes, then that's what it's going to take. We know this organization is Brandon Hyde's not afraid to, to sit you down, but like it's, yeah, they, they're going to ride those veterans. And even if they're not struggling, they're going to ride those veterans a lot more than, than people want. We know Adam Frazier is going to be at the top of that lineup most nights. And even if he's playing well, people are going to absolutely hate it. And the moment Grayson Rodriguez doesn't go six innings, people are going to freak out. Baseball season's coming. And at this point, by the end of last year, I was so sick and tired of it. I was ready to just delete Twitter. Uh, now I am ready for it. I bring it. Bring it on. Bring, bring it on, on the daily, the daily fighting and chaos on Orioles Twitter, because it's been a long winter. One thing the Orioles have shown, and we saw this repeatedly last year, is they're not afraid to go with what they know works for them. Um, Rudinetto Dorb was never the hot hand at any point last year for any meaningful stretch, but the Orioles knew that there was they could make it work most nights. They could win games with Rudinetto Dorb at second base. And, you know, I think Brandon Hyde did like Odor's defense on double play situations. Um, so if Adam Frazier is hitting 240 with a 371 base percentage or a 361 base percentage and playing good second base every night, and they're not comfortable yet with putting Taron Vavra out there, they're not comfortable with putting Jordan Westberg out there yet, they're not going to do it, especially if they're winning. So the Orioles are going to go with what works for them. So. That's kind of what I expect is going to be the case this year, especially if they're looking to compete. I'll go back to Vivek, which is this question. What would be your most favorite slash ideal headline coming out of spring training? One that I would absolutely love. And it's not going to happen because of a lot of the reasons we just talked about, but one that I would absolutely love would be that Colton Kowser makes the opening day roster out of camp. Like, I wish we were in that position. I think he could do it, and I think he could be successful. Um, Austin Hayes gets traded, and that opens up the spot there for Colton Kowser, and he settles in. Again, it's not going to happen, but if we're talking about like an, an ideal fun one, that would be one for me. For me, it's kind of similar. I mean, for a lot of people, it would probably be Jordan Westberg makes the opening day roster. Mm -hmm. For me, it's Joey Ortiz makes the opening day roster just because – you know, he's my guy. He's our guy. We like him. Uh, maybe it's Jorge Mateo gets traded halfway through spring training and all of a sudden Joey Ortiz is maybe not your opening day shortstop, but you're opening, on your opening day roster and getting some playing time. So uh, I'll go with that one. Mine is uh, for the month of April, the Orioles will piggyback Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. So you can go watch Fording to Rodriguez, maybe two or three of Hall. Um, I don't know what would happen after that, but that would make for an awesome first month. And we'll wrap up here with a question from David. Um, he has a question basically about the top 100 prospects we've seen in general. He's very excited about it, but is there a way that all of these guys could not meet expectations, i.e. what are the areas to worry about with each of them? Now, the Orioles have had, I think now, 10 different players ranked inside a top 100 list. I think that's where the number is. Um, Heston Kerstad recently made, um, I believe it was, I remember which list it was, MLB Pipelines list. Um, so that added another player into the mix. So a lot of names sort through. So maybe more generally, what would be the areas that you would see where some of the hitters could fail or where the pitchers, Rodriguez and Hall, could struggle more than we expect? Well, of course, any and all of them could fail, whether it's due to injuries or poor performance. I mean, that's always a risk with prospects. They're called prospects for a reason. As far as the pitchers, 
I mean, we know for DL Holtz, he just never gets enough command. Uh, Rodriguez, oof, I don't know. He's pretty high ceiling. I guess uh, if he just never, if his, what was it? He's not much of a mover. If that kind of limits his upside, you know, maybe he's not quite as good as we expect. With the offensive guys, I feel like it's just, I don't know. Let's see. It's, they don't hit enough. <laughs> they can't hit a major league breaking ball uh, when it comes to Kowser. I think that's like the biggest thing he needs to shore up right now, according to what I've been reading lately. Uh, Keith Law, what's up? Um, yeah, I think it's more of just uh, getting playing time and, and hitting enough to, to – I think defensively all these guys are, are good enough to, uh, to stick. Norby maybe could use a little more you know, reps at second base to get up to adequate, but I, I would fully expect him to be able to do that. So, yeah, I mean, of course, they could all fail. I'm not exactly sure how, but I think it's more it just you got to hit enough. Yeah, I mean, the biggest, the easiest one I could see, and I, I hate kind of you know, foreshadowing this in any way whatsoever, but I think the the easiest one for me to see failing would probably, honestly, in my opinion, maybe it's Kerstad just because of what he did in Aberdeen was so extreme, but then what he did in Arizona was on the opposite end of that extreme spectrum almost. So like, yeah, there could be a situation where he gets to buoy and it's it's a lot of what we saw in Aberdeen. And then then what? Then what do you do with him? Um, he's definitely not a top 100 guy at that point. You know, Kobe Mayo is a guy who's on some top 100 list. That's kind of the same. I know some people are concerned about, you know, the strikeout issue a little bit, even though I think his strikeout numbers, when people bring up the strikeout issue with Mayo, like I don't really see too much of an issue so far up to this point. It's actually really good. But, you know, can he handle the breaking ball stuff? Is he going to be able to catch up? Uh, and, you know, will he be able to hit for a high average or is he going to be strictly like a three true outcome type player that just doesn't hit enough? I don't think so with Mayo, but that could be a concern. Colton Kowser, I think that's a good one that you mentioned there with, you know, handle, handling the breaking ball stuff. Maybe the strikeouts do become a, too much of a bugaboo for him again next year. Like we saw in Aberdeen at the beginning of the year, and that doesn't work out. You know, Grayson, is he, is he actually an injury prone pitcher at this point? You know, that's, it's a lot of what ifs, you know, it's temper expectations is, is good. Uh, it's a little bit harder when someone like Jeff comes on and kind of shares our excitement in a lot of these guys. But yeah, a lot of with the one that I'm thinking of that is super tough is Jackson Holiday. Like I cannot give you anything right now because I have becoming so high on Jackson Holiday. Like I need someone to temper my expectations with Jackson Holiday, to be honest. And if he comes out hitting really well in Aberdeen, it's going to be through the roof at this point. Yeah, I agree. You know, you can look through every player and find something to nitpick. I'm sure if you really wanted to sit down and take the time to do it, you could find something to nitpick with Gunnar Henderson. Um, yeah, you're going to find something there. But I think that the main thing for all of these guys is health. And then with Kersad in particular, I think Nick brought up a good point, which is that we did see a lot of extremes from him last year, and we still really don't know who he is quite yet as a hitter because he's had so little time professionally not to mention that he was a guy who had a strikeout risk at arkansas um it looks like in the covid shortened season that that was calming down a little bit but he did have a strikeout profile in his track record in arkansas so that's going to be the big thing with him mayo i think it's specifically just can he adjust 
to double A quality pitching, I think he will. But that there is a learning curve there, much like with Kerstad at high A last year. So you can look through it. Then with DL Hall, who we talked about earlier on the show, there is elite stuff there. There is no question about that. But you have to figure out: is he going to be a reliever? Is he going to be a starter? And regardless of what role he's in, is that command going to be good enough for him to be effective? If you want to take the glass half empty version, the answer is no. But I'm not going to fall in line with some of the really bad takes that were out there on Orioles Twitter last year about Hall late in the season and say that he's, you know, some version of Tanner Scott or something. I'm not going in for that. So he's going to be good. It's just a matter of figuring out what the role is going to be. And that there that's where you'd probably temper your expectations. Just read Keith Law and you'll you'll temper your expectations. <laughs> and now we're gonna dive into Keith Law's top one hundred list. Oh, we don't have three more <laughs> Well that does it for tonight's show. Jeff uh thank you to Jeff Ponce from Baseball America for sharing his insight. Uh really enjoyed having him on the show. Uh it was also fun to break down the Cole Urban trade. We will be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. There will be coverage of the NFL playoffs on there leading up to the Super Bowl, as well as some insight on college sports. Probably a few Orioles articles coming out here in the next few weeks as we get closer to spring training. And while you're on the site, be sure to hop on the message board and join discussion with fellow leaders as well as contributors to BSL. Follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds and check out our Facebook and Instagram profiles as well. And if you've not already Sign up for our Patreon community. You can join for as little as $3 a month. There are also $5 and $10 tiers that will give you access to exclusive daily content, including our top 50 prospects list, which is continuing to roll out. We're now in the teens, so you're not going to want to miss that part of the list. Uh, For Bob Phil and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.